Lately, the south coast of Ireland's become famous for its cuisine. Imagine Irish gastronomy. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, Barry Maloney tells us what's making his home region of County Cork a destination for Irish, British, and American visitors, and even the French, and why Cork has a character all its own. We love to talk down in Cork. It's a place where we've time for each other. And also, Cork is known as the Rebel County. And travel writer Rolf Potts is taking traveling light to wild extremes. In fact, Rolf recently accepted a challenge to venture around the world with absolutely no luggage. Okay, he had lots of pockets. He'll tell us how it changed his travel experience, including the flight screening process. You're not carrying a bag? And I said, no. And I expected them to come down on me somehow, and they just shrugged and said, wow, you're as light a traveler as we've ever seen. It's how to travel without any baggage and the attractions of Ireland's south coast in the hour ahead. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Coming up, we'll find out how Rolf Potts traveled all around the world without any luggage. And in doing so, he got closer to the culture and the locals in the places he visited. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with an insider's look at Ireland's County Cork. When I travel in Ireland, I'm always impressed by the local pride. First of all, people love to talk, and they love to talk about where they're from. And each county has its own pride and its own spirit. And we're going to learn today about County Cork. We're joined by Barry Maloney, and Barry's a guide who lives in the beautiful seaside port of Kinsale. And uh, we're going to talk about this beautiful corner of Southern Ireland. Barry, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. really appreciate being here. So you're a, do you call it a cork man? Yeah, cork man. As opposed to a carry man? Yeah, that's it. Uh, cork and carry are neighboring counties. Does that um, mean your friends or your competitors? Uh, kind of uh, roguish competitors, <laughs> you know. On the football pitch, uh, we're, we're definitely competitors. You'd be the rivals. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when you have a, a crosstown rival, it would be Cork and Kerry. That's true, yeah. And we, basically, they make jokes about us, and we make jokes about them, you know. Is that right? Tell me a joke about the Kerry people. Uh, okay, well, this is kind of a Cork versus Kerry joke, you know. Right, it was two, right. two Kerry men, they came to Cork one day, and they saw two Cork men fishing. And they were fishing in a very unusual way. One Cork man was lowering the other guy off a bridge by his legs into the water. And he catch a fish and pull him out. And so the carryman said, what are you doing? And the corkman said, we've worked out a fantastic system. You cannot be caught for poaching because so, we've got no equipment. So if the uh, gamekeeper comes along, we can just throw the fish back in and we're no evidence, you know. So the carryman said, this is a fantastic invention. Let's take it back to Kerry. So they crossed the border back into Kerry, set up the system on a bridge. And once one carryman lowered the other man down, immediately his friend shouted, Pull me up, pull me up quick. And the guy said, why? Did you catch a fish so quickly? He said, uh, no, there's a train coming. So, <laughs> oh, it was a train bridge. Okay, <laughs> so that's the carry man approach to it. Not a very smart idea. Well, that's the... Some, that's, and you could flip-flop it. That's the teasing. Yeah, you could flip-flop. yeah, they tell the joke with the cork. And cork I, I heard a joke about something about one man goes to another county and the IQ of both counties goes down or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, what was it? Carry man went to cork and uh, the average IQ of the two counties reduced. At the same time. At the same time. <laughs> Once you cross okay. the board. So we're talking about County Cork. When people in Ireland think of County Cork, mm -hmm. what do they think of? Uh, first and foremost today, they think of food. Yeah. And history. So Cork is really the self-proclaimed gourmet capital of Ireland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been writing about this for years in guidebooks. And self-proclaimed, is that just it's good for tourism or is it actually better? Well, interesting you mentioned that because just before I came here to Seattle, uh, the French have taken notice of us. And there's a recent review all about my hometown, Kinsale. Yeah. So uh, Kinsale's still hot with uh, gourmet eaters. Yeah. There's yeah. a place in your town, Fishy Fishy Cafe. Exactly. Is fishy, that still fishy. in business? Yeah. Oh, very oh, much so. I love that place. Yeah. Beautiful place. The chef, Martin, he has started his TV show. He's got a regular TV show. So now when the French pay attention to it, I remember in Ireland in the old days, it was just Irish cooking and it was overcooked vegetables and you're, you know, pretty boring and pretty forgettable. Now you have sort of a French fusion thing going on, don't you? Yeah. So what do you have? You have the French um, finesse and you got the local ingredients? Exactly. Well, the Irish travel so much. You know, historically, we've traveled quite a lot and we bring back our influence. I mean, Martin and Fishy Fishy, you mentioned, picked up a lot of his ideas in San Francisco, himself and his wife moved to San Francisco for a few years and admired how the Asian food was presented and cooked so perfectly. 
There's a guy in Kerry, Dingle Peninsula, and he traveled all over the world, and he's got a wonderful restaurant right in the main street in Dingle, uh-huh. inspired by recipes he picked up in his travels. It's really quite nice. Now, in Cork, you're, you're proud of the dairy, and what else? Well, seafood, like you mentioned, the, the seafood, and also dairy is so important, cheesemaking. And that goes way back to our roots, because, you know, in terms of treasure, the treasure in Ireland was a cow, beef. Right. You know, we didn't have gold, silver, or right. natural resources like this. So, you know, you, you read in Irish history about cattle raids, starting wars between neighbouring tribes, and we have real pride in Cork of the quality of our, our milk. So a man's wealth was his cattle. Yeah, okay. exactly. And then great cattle, therefore great dairy, part yeah. of the cuisine. History, Kinsale was the site of a very influential battle. True, the Battle of Kinsale, 1601. Why was that so important? So important in Kinsale's terms because it led to the defeat of the Irish chieftain class. The chieftainship system fell apart and England's rule in Ireland became much stronger after that battle. So this was like the big showdown between England and the the military aristocracy of Ireland, is that right? Yes. So and it, an Irish just threw everything out it and, yeah. and they just got destroyed. Exactly. And in the crossfire, the Spanish became involved. Oh, that's right. The Spanish were there. Yeah. In 1601, Spanish Armada, the last Spanish Armada, landed a force in Kinsale. They landed in order to help out the Irish because... Your enemy's enemy is your friend. So the Spanish didn't like the English, and the Irish didn't like the English. Therefore, the Spanish liked the Irish and helped them out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Barry Maloney, a tour guide from Ireland, and Barry lives in the county of Cork, and we're talking about County Cork. Now, when you go to Kinsale today, which is the main tourist town in the south coast of Ireland, I think it's fair to say. Yes. Kinsale, K-I-N-S-A-L-E. Talk about those incredible star fortresses. Yeah, true. There's two star-shaped forts which were built after the Battle of Kinsale, built by the English, to make sure that no enemy of England could take Kinsale and use it against them. Okay, so this was because Kinsale has this beautiful port, huh? And, yes. And they knew it was strategic. Because of the wind. Because of the wind. Because Kinsale is windward of England. Ah. So with the wind at your backs from Kinsale, you could threaten England. Oh, so before the steamships, in the day of military sailboats, Mm -hmm. Kinsale was particularly important. Therefore, when England got the upper hand, they built the most incredible fortresses possible right there. That's true. True, Rick. These star-shaped forts. Star-shaped so that you can, what, so every part of the fortress can defend every other part of the fortress. Exactly, exactly. When you're under attack. I often, like when I take especially school groups up there to Charles Fort, overlooking the harbour, I often say to them, imagine if you're given the order to attack the fort. As you scale the wall, you'd be shot in the back. By the fort? From people inside the fort. From within the fort. So that's, that was, the, yeah. that's the genius of the star-shaped fort. Yeah, yeah. All right, what, what decade was that made in? Uh, that would be late 1600s. Late 1600s. Now, we've talked about history, we've talked about cuisine, but for me, travelling in Ireland is really... You meet a lot of characters, a lot of interesting people. That's true. That's true. In Cork, what kind of people are you going to encounter in Cork? Well, there's a saying down in Cork that Cork isn't really a place. It's a state of mind. How how so? What I mean by that is it's a place where we have time for each other. Okay. So, you know, a Cork person's way of asking directions, for example, would be, first of all, make a lot of small talk and almost as an afterthought. Ask, is this the road to Killarney? Oh, you know? so you stop somebody in the middle and you just want to ask them, is it a, do you turn right or left up here? Yeah. You wouldn't just say that directly. First of all, you talk about the weather. Yeah. That's a good talking point. <laughs> then you talk about politics, you know, the economy. And then as an afterthought, as you're leaving... Oh, and by the way, by I'm, the way, this I'm, I'm, I'm going under- to Killarney. Which way do I go? Exactly, yeah. We love to talk down in Cork. And also we're known for... Our, it's Cork is known as the rebel county. Because Michael Collins it, is from Cork, right? True. Okay, so he's one of the great characters of Irish yeah. independence. Yeah. He came he's, from Cork. Yeah, he's nicknamed Michael Collins, the big fellow. And he, he changed the course of Irish history. He fought for Irish independence. He negotiated the treaty that gave Ireland its independence yeah. from, from so, England. So Cork, you could say, is a hotbed of the Irish independent spirit. Yes, the rebel county. W- would other people as... agree with that? Oh, yeah, they would. They would. Now, if I want to connect with the culture of mm-hmm. Ireland, mm-hmm. and I'm traveling through Cork or whatever, you've got lots of ways to do that. Sport? Sure. Sport. Uh, How can a tourist really connect with the spirit of Ireland through sport? Well, really, our unique sport, and we call it the, the most exciting game in the world, is hurling. Huh. Why? Well, it's, it's fast, it's furious, scores are very, very high, and again, this is where pride of place comes in. Pride of place, okay. So, First of all, hurling is like, to me, it's like airborne hockey. Yeah, 
Very you're good. hurling this puck through the air. Brilliant way of describing it. I've never no, heard it described better. No injury timeouts. No. So you're off the field, if you're <laughs> off the field, you got one less guy on the field. That's it. That's a rugged game. Okay. Pride of place. Yeah. Pride of place comes in basically is back to parish versus parish. You know. Uh huh. I suppose it came about in ancient times from what we call faction fights, where basically you take your parish on in a in a fight. Huh. And then they decided let's make it more civilized instead of hitting the guy with the stick on the head. Let's parish put a ball against in there. parish. Yeah. One of my favorite memories in Ireland is going to the National Hurling Championship in Croke Park yeah. in Dublin. Uh, what we call the All-Ireland, the All-Ireland yeah. Final. Wow. I've never seen such intensity in a stadium. Yeah, it's Just exciting. in the stands, even yeah. apart from the actual athletes. Exactly. And there's, you mentioned huh. the intensity, there's how you connect with the Irish culture. Now, if you go to the game, the most incredible thing about a hurling game is the, the grandfather jumping around and screaming right next to you. You know, <laughs> that's more entertaining sometimes it than is. what's going on in the pitch. It is. And my vocabulary really expanded. I learned lots of new swear words. <laughs> I'm They're sure. Very clever cursing. I'm sure. Going yeah. on. Lots of insults being thrown around. Yeah. And the referee takes the brunt of a, of yeah. a lot of them. Now, if you're a tourist and you're traveling in Ireland, if you get a chance to go to a hurling match, mm. is that a reasonable thing for a tourist to do? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, when you're traveling around Ireland, of course, you've got the tourist traps, you've got the Blarney Stone and so on. You've also got sites that relate back to the British colonial sort of time. Mm-hmm. What site in Cork really lets you get a sense of the British colonial? I would say of that uh, Bantry House. So that would be a, a manor house of some big-time landlord who was English. Yeah. Yes, the, the big house, the and country house. the flip side of that is, are there famine sites in Cork? Yes. Uh, I mean, Skibbereen in West Cork is a place that was devastated by the famine. And there's a huge, a huge grave there where up to 10,000 people wow. were buried in a mass grave. Skibbereen. Yeah. Skibbereen. What's the latest on Catholic laws? I mean, uh, people are interested in, in abortion, birth control, divorce, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ireland is one of the most um, mixing up the Catholic faith and secular laws. Yes, a complicated question in Ireland because, as James Joyce put it in the early 1900s, Ireland was a place where church and state were like hand and glove. So the constitution includes references to God. And that means today the Constitution is a legal minefield. So the Constitution from the 1930s mm. mixes, explicitly mixes church and state. Oh, yes. yes. So today, what, what is the situation for people who want to use birth control, who want to get a divorce, who want an abortion? Mm. Is that changing or well, is, are they sticking with that 1930s? No, uh, the state is becoming much, much more secular. You can divorce. But it takes five years, very lengthy process. You have to be separated for five years before you divorce. Abortion is illegal, but of course, abortion is legal in, in the United Kingdom. So if somebody needs an abortion and they have no problem with that for their personal morality, they would go to England. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if somebody wants to get a divorce, they have to wait five years. Yes. And birth control? Birth control, same as here, really. No problem. Things have changed. Control. I mean, but... The Catholic Church grip on Irish society has lessened considerably. Barry Maloney is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore the south coast of Ireland in County Cork. We're at 877-333-7425. And you can share your Ireland travel tips with us in the radio section of ricksteves.com. It's travel. With Rick Steves. ditch the suitcase and even the backpack in just a bit when Rolf Potts joins us to describe his round-the-world trip without any luggage. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, our guest is from Kinsale, Ireland. Barry Maloney tells us about the character of his end of the island, County Cork. 
Okay, let's talk about going into the pubs to, to understand the people and connect with the culture. What mm-hmm. are some tips there? Mm-hmm. Well, pubs nowadays, they've kind of changed a little bit in recent times. There's a lot of food in pubs and also music in pubs. I've noticed there's been a little bit of a change that way. Yeah, so it's more diverse. Uh, not such heavy drinking, not these yeah. guys that are just kind of pickled that have been sitting there for 40 years. True, true. And so what I'd connect pub life with today is uh, live music. Live music. And, of course, my favorite place in Ireland, uh, Dingle. Mm-hmm. I, I know you like Dingle yourself a lot. Mm-hmm. It's it's the mecca for it's Irish got, music. It's got more pubs per square meter with live music with than live music. any place I've seen. Yeah, in the mall. And, I mean, it's really... And it's not just for tourists. There's a, there's a, enough interest in that to power this little industry, mm-hmm. this, this art form. Yeah. I mean, what we call a session, you know? Yeah. I know what you call... Sometimes in America you call a session it's a session in the gym, you know. Right. But in <laughs> in Ireland, a session is in the pub. Right. And it's a music uh, music session, you know. Now you go into a pub, and we're talking about this pride of place. I know in much of Ireland, if you order a beer, mm-hmm. you'll get a Guinness. That's just what a beer is. True. Or what we call a stout. A stout. If you want a pint of stout, yeah. you get a Guinness. What do you get in, in uh, Cork when you order a pint of stout? Well, in Cork, you we have two local stouts, which is a, a black beer with a with a white head on it. Right. Uh, one is Beamish and the other is Murphy's. All right. And there's a lot of rivalry between people who drink Murphy's and drink Guinness. You know, so Murphy's versus Guinness. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. that's the feeling I get. Some people, mm-hmm. and it's a regional thing. If you're from Cork, yeah. you like Murphy's better than Guinness, yeah. even if you don't. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and there's one local, uh, actually, bus driver I know, and he he describes Murphy's. He says it's so sweet and creamy. He describes it as mother's milk. I, you know, it is as sweet and creamy, if my memory serves me correctly, as mother's milk. It's there's something <laughs> about it. I go, it goes way back. I just feel like I'm home here. This it's is just cuddly. Something in the genetic code. Yeah. Murphy's, because I don't know. I'm just a tourist, and I mm. go to Ireland. Mm. And occasionally I'll get a Guinness and occasionally I'll get a Murphy's. They're mm. both the same kind of beer, right? They're both yeah. a stout. Yeah. You can draw a shamrock in the head. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it takes a long time to to draw it, right? You never you never rush it. True. There's an art to pouring a beer. And, and to get it full, you got to wait for it to settle down and then top it off and top it off. Yeah. And then finally it's ready. Mm-hmm. And there's a very fundamental difference between Murphy's and Guinness. Mm-hmm. And I like Murphy's better, i got to say. Oh, yeah. Good to hear. And I have no idea. The regional loyalties. <laughs> Well, I'm sure they'll be quoting you on their next poster, you know? <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Ireland, specifically County Cork in the south coast of Ireland with Barry Maloney. Barry's a guide and takes people all over Ireland. His home county is Cork, and that's what we're talking about now. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at com. Mary's on the line in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Mary, thanks for your call. I, I love being uh, part of your show. Great. Do you have a comment for Barry? Yes. I wanted to ask him a couple of questions. My husband and I, well, my husband's family is from Cork, and we hope to someday go to Ireland and explore. And what we want to do is just go and rent a car and let the road take us where we may. And what I would like to know is, what is the best time of year to visit your wonderful country? And would it be putting ourselves in jeopardy to just travel around with no hotel reservations. That's a very fundamental question. Can Mary and her husband go to Ireland and just blow around without worrying about reservations? Sure. Great questions, uh, Mary. Well, first of all, the time. What comes into that is, is, of course, the weather, the climate, the weather. What I'd recommend, personally myself, would be either May or September. Okay. Where you're a little bit off the peak, yet everything's open. So you've got the best of both worlds. And you can pick and choose in terms of accommodation. Oh, great. So you, you could wonderful. just drive into Kinsale yeah. or, or Waterford or Skull or Bantry or Kenmare or Killarney yeah. and find a place. Yeah, yeah we want to stay more at the mom-and-pop places, not the touristy places. Excellent. Well, my visit now to Seattle is my first time in America. And it's a bit of a culture shock <laughs> traveling up the five-lane uh, freeway. Because believe me, in Ireland, I've never seen I've never seen a five lane freeway like that. You know, the roads are narrow, double double the time you think it'll right, take yeah. it'll take you to go from A to B. And basically, I, what I'd suggest is book maybe book your fir- your first couple of nights, and then, as they say, go where Ireland takes you. Thank you. 
We are so looking forward to going. So, Mary, to review, May and September are the best time. You've got Mm -hmm. long days, reasonable weather, and things are still open. Mm -hmm. If you go in the winter, it's kind of desolate when you get out tooling about. You can pull into any small town and look for the bed and breakfast. They're all advertised. And the smaller, the better. There's a tax cutoff, I think. If it has more than five rooms or something, it's in a different tax category. Oh, okay. So these little tiny mom and pops, it just supplements their income, and it's just a it's a beautiful chance to get to know uh, an Irish family. Yeah. Great. Save a lot That's of money, wonderful. and they're always a good inside track for local advice for where to have your pub dinner or whatever. Excellent. Have Excellent. a great time. Thanks for your Thank call. You. Thanks, Thank Mary. Bye-bye. Luann's on the line in Ravenna, Ohio. Luann, thanks for your call. Hi. I'm enjoying uh, the conversation, and I do have a couple of questions for your guest. Um, my daughter is coming to County Cork in about six weeks uh, to teach a dance workshop for a couple of weeks. And so I'm wondering what kind of clothing for this type of, you know, and she's also a big foodie, so I, I was, I've been reading about County Cork, and I know that there's a market, but I don't know if it's there in the winter. Sure, Luan. Uh, in terms of clothing, I know the dancing will keep her a little bit warm, but uh, in terms of clothing, be very similar to Seattle this th- okay. that time of year. You know? So mild, so, kind of cold and blustery. Yeah, bring layers. That's the, that's the key to our Layers, life. yes. A, a good yes. hat, you know, good hat and a scarf and layers, plenty layers, because right. it, can, it can go either way. It, you know, it can be mm-hmm. blustery, cold, could be sunny, but it'll still be cold in the evenings and the nighttime, you know? Quite so, variable. Yeah, variable. So, but bring layers. Uh, in terms of food, fishy, fishy, I can't recommend it highly enough in Kinsale. That would be a great starting point. The market you mentioned in Cork City, it's called the English Market. Okay. And it's open all year round because it's an indoor market. Wonderful. And it's fantastic. I mean, you get local foods up there that will really open your, your eyes. You know, Cork was an important town in terms of provisioning ships. So, okay. the, so there's a lot of unusual Cork delicacies like tripe and drasheen. Which are made from the offcuts of. Nice to see right. that in the market, actually, in, and, in and the then market. you'll see it on the menu that night yep. in, in your restaurant ah, or pub. There's a lovely cafe in that market called the Farmgate Cafe. Farmgate Cafe. And, okay, I'll pass uh, the information along. Uh, I'm wishing that I could accompany her. <laughs> yeah. Luann, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thanks, Luann. Happy travels. Bye now. Barry, we were talking about Murphy's and Guinness and the pubs and so on. I've got a sense that the trend is going to lagers and, and lighter beers than the stouts. Is that your take? Yes, a little bit so. You know, Irish people travel a lot, so yeah. we're bringing that influence back. And I think Ireland is in the EU, and things are just ramping up a little bit. Does that make sense to you, that there'd be people are getting caught up in the more high-powered economies or... The pace of life, you pace mean? pace of life. Yeah, is the that, pace of life is getting a little bit faster. Do you feel and, that because you're in the EU? Is uh, there a pressure or not? I wouldn't say that's the, that's the exact reason for it, you know? Okay. The world is becoming a smaller place. Yeah, but uh, we still have time for each other in, so you'll in still, the evenings. You'll still in the pub. chat before you get to the yeah. uh, question you stopped somebody for. That's it. The pubs are going smoke free. True, they've gone smoke free now. Yeah, completely. And has that been an easy transition? Or initially, people thought there'd be huge resistance, mm-hmm. but that was until it actually came into practice. One day, the law appeared, and all of a sudden, you couldn't smoke in a pub. So people used it as an opportunity to chat outside. So you take your it, beer it, and your cigarette outside. It, opened up the thing socially quite yeah. a lot. All and right. smokers developed a kind of a, a common bond, you know. Standing outside. And also pubs began to redefine the definition of what is outside. What does that mean? As long as there's a gap between the wall and the ceiling, it's legally outside. Really? So that's a technicality? technicality. You can have your cigarette in a covered patio yeah. with walls. Even some, some of them have solid walls, solid concrete oh, walls okay. so and roofs a gap. with a, a foot gap. So that would be an interesting thing to talk about when you're in a pub. Is yeah. this inside or outside? Yeah. You know, I'm charmed by the distinction. Ireland is a small island, and there's so many distinctions with each county. That harkens back to a time when people did not travel so much, I think. Now, I think the world's more mobile. Is that threatening the regional distinctions in Ireland? I would say no, because it's kept very much alive still by the sporting pride people have. Really? So sporting contributes to the, the, the regional pride and the distinctions between the regions? Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Barry Maloney about his home county, Cork. In Cork, people speak really fast. That's true. Something I had to really learn as a tour guide is to slow down and make gaps between the words. And in fact, there's a joke, Cork joke about that. How Cork people speak so fast that we can reduce every word to a single letter. Show me. Uh, well, there's a conversation. I'll, I'll translate it for you as I okay. go into English. Okay. 
So two men at a fish stall in the English market in Cork, and one of them says to the other, ABC the fish. And <laughs> that, that means anybody see the fish. And the other character replies, there are no fish, which means they're not fish. <laughs> and to which the first guy re- replies, see the beady eyes. The beady eyes are the fish, you know. Well, okay. And the other character then comes back with, oh, by G, they are fish. Oh, by G, there are fish. So by Jesus, they are fish. <laughs> <laughs> the Cork dialect. That's known technically as Hiberno-English. Hiberno-English. If you go to the Oxford scholars, that's what they'll tell you we talk. See the beady eyes. See the beady eyes. <laughs> Barry, if you're going to just show me Cork, and you're, you're a Corkman and you, you're really proud of this county, where would you take me and, and how would I gain an appreciation for your corner of Ireland? If I was to pick one place of Cork, mm-hmm. of course I'd have to say my hometown, Kinsale. Beautiful, colourful buildings. I believe you compared it yourself to Sausalito. Is that true? That's right. Yeah, it's a Sausalito kind of place. I did write about that. It just feels like life is good. It's on the water. It is. People are out and embracing the moment. Yeah, life is good. You've got everything from water sports, people sailing. What's the pub? It's out there halfway to the Star Fort, right on the waters. The Bullman. Bullman Bullman pub. Yeah, sit outside, watch the sailing boats come in and out. Looking at the Star Fortress that the English built, and now you don't have the English there anymore except as paying tourists. That's true. And just above your head, there's a a portrait of Don Juan de la Quilla, the Spanish commander that led the Spanish into Kinsale to attempt to free Ireland from English rule in 1601. That evokes the, the feisty spirit of the Irish people. Yeah, and the yeah. fact that after all of these generations, life is good in yeah. the south of Ireland. Yeah. Barry Maloney, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Rick. I'll see you at the Bowman's Pub. See you there. Thanks for having me. All right. There's a dear old land of ferries and of wondrous wishing wells. And nowhere else on God's green earth have they such lakes and dells. No wonder that the angels loved its shamrock-bordered shore. Tis a little bit of a heaven, and I love it more and more. Ireland certainly leaves an impression on its visitors. Here's some haiku some of our listeners wrote about what Ireland said to them. They sent us their original poems through a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Melinda Smith, that's with a Y, lives in Lakewood, Ohio, and sends us this impression of her visit to Ireland. The last sight of land... I stand where my kin left home. Seals dance in the surf. Carol Snow from Delmar, California, sends us two haiku about stops she made in Ireland. Invigorating, cold winds stop us in our tracks. The cliffs of moor. Blowing and cutting, QC smashing the rejects. Waterford Crystal. And Kathy Schaefer of Bellevue, Washington, learned something about Irish history on a visit to Dublin. Celtic flourishes decorate the Book of Kells, borrowed pagan art. The changeable, blustery spring weather in Ireland might dictate that you pack layers of clothing to accommodate the fickle weather. But travel writer Rolf Potts accepted a challenge to go on a round-the-world trip last fall to Western Europe, Africa, Asia, and down under with only the clothes on his back. You'll never meet anybody who, after five trips, brags, every year I pack heavier. With experience, you get serious about packing light. But, you know, you can take it to an extreme, and Rolf Potts did. Rolf Potts is is one of the, the busiest travel writers I've encountered, and he just spent six weeks traveling 30,000 miles through five continents with no luggage. And Rolf joins us today to uh, give us a little insight into his experience. Rolf, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. I went around the world on a um, on around the world ticket from New York to London to Paris to Madrid, uh, through Morocco and Egypt, down to South Africa, across the Indian Ocean to Thailand, overland through Malaysia to Singapore. Then I flew to New Zealand by way of Australia, and then I flew home. And that was six weeks. The world is a big place, so it was a very uh, uh, activity and travel-intensive six weeks, but I didn't have any luggage the whole time. Tor Heyerdahl traveled from South America to Polynesia to prove they could be uh, inhabited by people from from Chile or something like that. What were you trying to prove on this big journey? Well, I was trying to prove to myself that I could do it, but I was also trying to prove that travel isn't really about what you drag along behind you. It's about the experiences you find in front of you. 
it's something I write about a lot in my book, Vagabonding, and, and uh, I always tell people to take a really small pack. But people seem to obsess on, on, on packing, and so I just sort of wanted to prove that you can have an amazing journey and not be too obsessive about packing a bunch of stuff that you may or may not use. Because that was my hunch, that it's more about uh, having a rich experience rather than simply proving you don't need more gear to have more fun. Yeah, I think people pack a lot of just-in-case items, and they can sort of fetishize the packing process. Uh, and I just sort of wanted to prove that um, packing uh, the bare essentials is really all you need to do. And at the end of the day, I wasn't really inhibited that much by not carrying that much. Okay, tell me what the bare essentials were. Exactly what did you take? Keeping in mind that I wore one set of clothes, including some cargo pants and a performance shirt and a jacket with many, many pockets, made by Scotty Vest, which is one of my sponsors, uh, I brought some toothpaste, some sunscreen, a toothbrush. I brought an iPod to sort of organize my trip on and a Bluetooth keyboard to write my blogs on. Uh, and then a few spare pair of clothing. Um, let's see, a, a spare underwear, a spare T-shirt, and a spare socks. And I just packed things away. I think I'm forgetting a few things. I brought a handkerchief and, and some deodorant and some other toiletry-type things. But everything fit on the inside of the pockets of this travel vest jacket that I had. So you were you had no bag, literally no bag. It was all zipped up in pockets. Right. I didn't even have a day pack or a carry-on. It was, uh, it was absolutely hands-free, items in pockets, baggage-free travel. But I would imagine when you're out and about, you were comfortable leaving this coat that had all these pockets at your hotel or whatever, so you could actually not be lugging around that as well. Yeah, yeah. As I told some people, it was the no baggage challenge, not the carry everything with you at all times challenge. Right. And so, yeah, I, I would put my coat on the hanger and take out my toiletries and put them in the hotel. You, you crossed all sorts of borders. You got onto all sorts of airplanes. Did people look at you suspiciously? Like, why are you traveling with no luggage? Not at all. In fact, it, it didn't even come up as a question, until I got to New Zealand and uh, the Kiwi border agents just said, you're not carrying a bag? And I said, no. And I expected them to come down on me somehow. And they just sort of shrugged and said, wow, you're, you're as light a traveler as we've ever seen. You had valuables you had to carry. And what was your trick for you know your, your essential documents and so on? Uh, those also fit in the pockets. In the cargo pants, there was an, an inner zip pocket that carried my passport, which I didn't really take out that much. Uh, but I kept with me at all times. I also kept an ATM card in there and cash. So did you rely on your ATM card to get your cash throughout the trip? That's correct, yeah. I didn't I didn't bring any other cash or traveler's checks uh, or anything. ATMs are, are very dependable these days. And I wasn't getting too far away from the big cities. You know, to travel right. the world in six weeks, you have to go from city to city. And so the ATMs were very accessible and, and convenient. And it's fair to say you got to work pretty hard to find yourself in a place where your ATM won't get you the cash you need. That's true, you know, and, and even if you are headed for the middle of nowhere, you can just grab some cash in the capital city first. So. Sure. More with Ralph Potts around the world with no luggage but lots of pockets in just a moment. It's travel with Rick Steves. Nazywam się Kasia Derlicka, jestem z Warszawy z Polski i podróżuję z Rickiem Steve'em. And that was Polish for my name is Kasia Derlicka from Warsaw, Poland, and I travel with Rick Steves. Nazywam się Kasia Derlicka, Warszawy z Polski i podróżuję z Rickiem Steven. Rickiem Steven? That's my name in Polish? That's your name in Polish. Rickiem Steven. <laughs> Dziękuję. Dziękuję. Rolf Potts is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves, and he's telling us about his no-baggage challenge, taking six weeks to travel to 12 countries all around the world and take no luggage at all, not even a carry-on. You'll find easy links to Rolf's blog and website in our online program details. We post them for each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rolf, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. What was the surprise sort of advantage you found, Rolf, in your experience traveling so footloose and fancy-free? I think it was just the option to always be able to do whatever I wanted and go wherever I wanted. Um, I ended up going to the wrong town in Morocco, for example. I wanted to go to Chepchawan, but of course I, I mispronounced the transliteration and said Chepchuan to my yeah. taxi driver. He sent me to Tetuan, which um, is not the same city, but it was a wonderful, there was a market day there. The Berber merchants had come in from the mountain. 
it was just a fantastically exciting day to be in Tetuan. And instead of having to figure out where to squirrel away my luggage yes. or checking into a hotel, I just I just spent four hours enjoying it and spent the day there before I left. That's a beautiful thing. Once I got on the train thinking I was going to Sorrento, but I went to Salerno. And had I had no luggage, it would have been no problem at all. But my bag was still back in Sorrento, so it caused me a major problem. You can screw up when you have no bags and not have to figure out where to leave your bag. That's it. What, what would have been a humiliating experience, <laughs> I could just, it, two seconds and I could throw myself into, into what was happening there because I had nothing to worry about. And when you have less luggage, you got less to get ripped off. Uh, you wrote very vividly about sleeping second class on that train from Thailand to Malaysia. It's a beautiful experience to be able to sleep on a train, uh, especially in that part of the world, especially when you don't have to worry about waking up and having your bag gone. Yeah, and that that's something that happened every day of the trip. In fact, my biggest worries about it were at the very beginning when it's like, oh my gosh, where's my bag? Because you know you have that traveler's instinct of always keeping track of your bag. But then suddenly I didn't have one, and you know I could take off my vest and use it as a pillow on that train, and there was nothing nothing to worry about because there was nothing to lose. And when your luggage is that small, your pillow doesn't give you a stiff neck in the morning because when I'm on a train and nervous, I use my bag for my pillow and it's a very uh, hard angle. Yeah. If anything, there's uh, not enough padding if you travel wide <laughs> enough. A lot of travelers are passionate about their pockets and you probably had more pockets than most people. What was your favorite pocket? Ooh, well, the the vest I was using, the, the Scotty Vest Tropical Jacket Vest, it's not really designed for traveling around the world with no luggage, but there's um, a pocket that's basically for an iPad. It, it opens up from the inside, as most of the pockets do, and it was just a nice, big, roomy place where I could put spare clothing. And, I like um, that. A big pocket. You could put a folded shirt in it almost. That's exactly what I did. There was a camera pocket that I kept some socks in and the, the back pouch where I kept my long sleeve shirt. But yeah, I could keep my underwear and my spare T-shirt there, and it didn't really look that lumpy. People weren't coming up to me on the street and saying, my gosh, you look like the Michelin man, you know. <laughs> when I travel, I've always got this Ziploc baggie full of little essentials that I just think will be handy to have. And I rarely even go into that bag. And I think a lot of people have this sort of uh, concern about being prepared. You went with none of those kind of extras. Was there anything you just wish you would have had that it was really regrettable not to leave home without? I, I didn't. The only thing that I really missed was something that a normal traveler wouldn't need, and it was a, a laptop. You know, was, I had this foldable Bluetooth keyboard that I was writing my blogs on as a travel writer, and I have big hands as it is, and I sort of missed the luxury of, of the laptop. Other people have asked me this question, and I can't think of something that I was just dying uh, to have. And so many of the things that you think you might need are available there. When we went on safari in South Africa, they had plenty of insect repellent, for example. Yeah, if you have a little extra money, you can you can manage easier uh, with less luggage because you simply buy things as you go. Yeah, the old adage says, uh, bring twice the money and half the gear. Um, and so I brought twice the money and uh, <laughs> one-tenth of the gear. One-tenth of the gear. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're debriefing Rolf Potts, who spent six weeks traveling 30,000 miles all around the world with no luggage. He carried stuff, but it was in his pockets, and he had a vest that was designed. There's a lot of different companies that make vests with lots of pockets. And I think what Rolf set out to prove is uh, how much gear you have is probably inversely correlated to the experience you will have. When you go around the world with everything in your pockets, what did you do about toiletries? Well, I had a few toiletries. I had a, a bottle of liquid soap, some, some Dr. Bronner soap, and a toothbrush and some toothpaste and some contact lens solution because my eyesight isn't so great. And I also depended a lot on just hotel rooms. Usually uh, there's some soap on offer or some shampoo, and uh, I use those to keep myself clean and to keep my clothing clean. And just because of the way I was traveling, I pretty much had to do laundry every day. That's right, because every night you'd brush your teeth, I hope, and you'd wash out whatever's dirty and hope it's dry in the morning. Yeah, and, and it really was a habit like brushing your teeth. Mm -hmm. um, I was a little worried it would become a, sort of a hassle, sort of an overbearing part of traveling with no luggage. But um, every night I almost looked forward to it, and sometimes I would actually shower in my clothes and uh, mm. just put the soap where I put the soap on my body yeah. and wring them out and, and hang them up, and uh, it, it worked quite well. You know, one of my favorite things on the road is when it's really hot, I just wash my shirt in a public fountain, and I wring it out tight, and I put it on, and it, it's just a blessing that it's still wet for a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, and in, and in tropical places, 
if it's not quite dry in the morning, just um, put it on and walk around the block or something. It's a good way to, it's a good way. to uh, <laughs> stay have cool. built-in air conditioning. Yeah. So you're on the road for six weeks. How many times did you wash your pants? <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, I, I washed the pants probably the least of any of my of my items. I know. I, that's I, what I, I'm thinking. I can go three weeks without <laughs> washing my pants. I don't tell anybody, but, uh, you know, they, they're just pants. They're hanging on your legs. It's just I don't think Davy Crockett did either. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it sort of depends on where you are. If you're in the tropics, you're going to be, you know, sitting on buses for 10 hours. You're going right. to be sweating uh, in ways that you aren't if you're in, a, in drier parts. But sure. I, about once a week, I washed the pants and they were fine. Well, I, I washed myself twice a day and I washed my socks, shirt and um, underwear once a day. Now, I use shampoo to wash my clothes. What do you wash your clothes in? I, I ended up using shampoo. I actually brought some concentrated detergent, some method laundry detergent, right. which is sort of this in, environmentally right. uh, friendly uh, concentrate. But I found that so many places where I was staying had had a hotel shampoo, and the yeah. shampoo worked quite well. And um, I ended up discarding the bottle of detergent uh, along with a few items. I actually came home with fewer items than I left with. Well, speaking of environmentalism, I have a problem with using Itsy Bitsies all the time. So I'm staying in 100 hotels every summer, and I never use any of their Itsy Bitsies because I take my single bar of soap and my single little squeeze bottle of shampoo, and that generally covers me for a trip. But I have to admit, I do use hotel shampoos when I want to wash my clothes. I don't want to uh, squander my precious favorite shampoo on my clothes because I like it on my hair. But I've never been to a hotel that didn't have a little uh, package of shampoo or didn't work just fine to wash my clothes in the sink. Yeah, it, it works terrific. And I ended up using the shampoo more than the detergent that I brought to wash things with. Nice. Now, electronics, you're packing only what you can put in your pocket, but you're a writer, so you had to have a keyboard. Now, that would be, for me, the biggest challenge and because uh, I love my little laptop, and, and really that's the, the major factor that keeps me from traveling as late as, as you did. How did you handle your electronics from a staying-in-touch point of view, from a photography point of view, and from a travel writer's point of view? Well, I had I had an iPod. Um, if I did it again, I would probably do it again with an iPhone because that has a built-in camera, including a video camera. Mm -hmm. And in, in addition to holding all sorts of information and being uh, internet ready, I could have taken photos with it. I actually brought a little digital camera that I discarded along the way. Um, yeah, the new iTouch or or the the latest iPhone is remarkably good from a photography and a video point of view. It really is, and unless you're a professional photographer, the, those keepsake photos turn out quite well from there. And then from a writing standpoint, I was really worried about this, but I bought a little foldable Bluetooth keyboard that was um, maybe half the size of a small paperback novel. And it was sort of a cramped keyboard, but it did the trick. And I just, it sent signals to my iPod. Um, and I wrote thousands and thousands of words worth of blogs on that little keyboard, although I will admit that I, I miss my laptop as well. Did you ever go to a cyber cafe just to get out a good keyboard? I did. When I was in Europe, especially, I enjoyed the luxury of having a big keyboard. But oftentimes, probably 75% of the time, I didn't have that option of a keyboard. So I was just mm -hmm. hunched over my little my little iPod and my little Bluetooth keyboard, and, and it did the trick. Um, I also, there's a service called Dropbox where you can keep mm -hmm. your, um, your laptop information sort of in the cloud. And so I could pull documents down through my iPod. I love Dropbox. Dropbox is free to a certain uh, amount of memory, and I've got friends in my office that'll put up TV shows to screen on Dropbox, or I can put up all of my writing or my photographs. Dropbox is a great tool when you're traveling, isn't it? it? It was. It was. It was like having just all the resources of my laptop with me, with my iPod. And so the challenge wasn't a lack of information. It was just the challenge was trying to type on this tiny little screen with a tiny <laughs> little keyboard. Well, that'll get better every year. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Rolf Potts. I've been a big advocate of pack and light all my life, but Rolf has taken it to an incredible extreme. He just traveled around the world in six weeks, literally around the world with no luggage. Not just a quick trip, six weeks on the road, 30,000 miles. Of course, the bottom line is not packing light. It's having a richer, more footloose and fancy-free experience. Tell me, Rolf, one of the highlights as you were traveling around the world with no luggage. Well, one of the very first things that I did uh, was fly into London, and I had a train leaving for Paris four hours later. And had I had luggage, I probably would have just sat next to my luggage and read a magazine. But I decided to, to go into London and have as many experiences as possible in those four hours. And for years, London has sort of been a transit city. I've never properly seen it. And so I was able to go in 
I, I called my story uh, 19 London Clichés in, in Less Than Four Hours. Um, and I went to Piccadilly Circus and rode a double-decker bus and went to Abbey Road and walked like the Beatles. I just was able to have just sort of this barnstorm, a very generic but very fun barnstorming tour of London uh, during a four-hour layover because there was nothing to slow me down. That's brilliant. So many people have had a, a layover where it's not enough time to get rid of your bags and all that sort of thing, but too much time just to hang around, and they're just sort of in a limbo, and it's a waste of time. In fact, you've got a philosophy. I just I think it's really interesting. A simple lifestyle equation, time equals wealth. Talk about that for a second. That's sort of the core philosophy of my first book, Vagabonding. Um, and it's about how the thought behind it is that we're all born equally rich in time and how you spend your time is more important than uh, how you spend your money, really, or what you accumulate. And that can apply very directly in travel experiences. If you're given two weeks or one week or ten days or six months to travel, why travel halfway around the world to sit around with a stack of luggage, you know, guarding it or waiting for a porter or waiting for a locker when you can travel light and just be able to optimize your time at any moment? Uh, and that was a big advantage I had on this trip. It's kind of related to freedom. Uh, you're free from messing with your luggage. You're free to have a bigger experience. And a lot of people get so focused in on the famous sites, they forget that they can turn their domestic chores into part of the travel experience as well. I know you enjoy getting a shave on the road. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I didn't pack a razor. Uh, and I'm not a, a very bearded guy, but after a, a couple of weeks on the road, I had a pretty shaggy face. And so I just went to uh, a back alley barber on Zamalek Island in Cairo and had probably the most intensive shave of my life. It, it took about 40 minutes. You would think that, you know, an experienced barber could scrape all the hair off your face in a couple of minutes. But I, I counted it, and I think there were 21 different steps. I made a video of it. He massaged my head and shaved me twice and put on all sorts of ointments and flossed my hair, <laughs> which must be some sort of uh, Middle Eastern fashion thing. Uh, but it was really interesting. And it, there's no place in North America that I've had anything approaching <laughs> that sort of shave or haircut. And so that simple necessity, I guess traveling light made me look outward for certain necessities like getting a shave instead of just reaching in my bag and having a five-minute shave in my hotel room, it turned into this little adventure in Cairo. And you could have spent 20 bucks for a shave in a hotel in Cairo or probably $3 for a shave down the street surrounded by people sucking on hookahs. That's it. And, and with Bakshish, with the tip, it was $6, I think, for a 40-minute <laughs> shave. And a lifetime experience. So, Rolf, you're traveling around the world with almost no luggage. That forces you to sort of um, ad-lib hygiene problems as you go. Did you learn anything from the developing world or from distant cultures that actually works better than what you would have brought from home anyways? You know, I did, and it was almost by accident. It was a product that I wasn't specifically looking for, but I was actually in the souk in the Medina of uh, Fez, Morocco. And I was at a spice shop, and, I, you know, the spices are very colorful and interesting to look at, but they also sold these little health and cosmetic products like henna or coal that women can put on their hands or their eyes. And one was a mineral salt, an alum mineral salt deodorant. Hmm. And it just, it just completely fascinated me. They, the, the Moroccans insisted that it was superior to the manufactured deodorants we have back in the States. So I bought it for a dollar, a little stone, and kept it in my pocket. And, you know, eventually I threw away <laughs> my deodorant. Wow. Um, because the alum crystal salt, it just kills the, the odor-causing bacteria in your armpits. And I applied that after my twice-a-day showers, and body odor was not that big of an issue. So a random encounter in the Fez Medina, and it, it's affecting a way I still apply deodorant. But in Kansas City, how do you find that wonderful in, indigenous alternative? <laughs> when I blogged about it, I found out from readers that it's actually sort of a naturopathic thing that's made its way to the States, and you can, you can order alum salts online. Um, but I would have had no idea it existed had I not been wandering through the Fez Medina uh, with no luggage on when, one day in Morocco. Travel the world and get smart about deodorant. Rolf, after this uh, six-week experience, you get home, and all of a sudden, you got all the material clutter you could ever want. How did your trip impact your life after you got home when it comes to materialism? Well, in a way, it, it dovetails with how I've always wanted to live. But there is something, I don't know, it, it, it's a mix of, of something that's comforting and a little bit depressing, going back and just having all these possessions. And... It's not something I did one week after, but two or three weeks after I got back, I just started cleaning out my closets. I, I really cleaned house, 
and just sort of got rid of the, the dead wood, so to speak. Um, and that was sort of refreshing to sort of um, try and boil down my home life to the essentials of what I use. You know, otherwise my house is just this edifice that stores things I never use. So packing light to embrace life can work at home as well as on the road. Yeah, I think it's it's a good attitude to have and a good exercise to have. I you know I've always said that um, travel is something that need not stop when you get home and unpack your suitcases. You mm-hmm. can carry that attitude forward and mm-hmm. and um, I won't say that I'm an, an expert, but um, I try. You know, psychologically and subconsciously, I think I struggle with that too. I know for like a week after I get home, I'm still all of my toiletries are still in my little travel toiletries kit, and it's sitting there on the on the on the counter of a big bathroom. But all I want to do is function out of that little tiny zip-up toiletries kit. Well, it's just, it's so much simpler, you know, everything is there. Yeah, there's that that heightened experience. I think actually part of the travel experience is that you don't have all these possessions weighting you down, psychologically or physically. And when you get back and have all these options back home, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's um, kind of a letdown. Time is wealth and material clutter is material clutter. You can learn lots more about Rolf's adventure with no luggage as he traveled around the world at his blog. It's rtwblog.com. Or you can go to Rolf's website, rolfpotts.com, R-O-L-F-P-O-T-T-S dot com. Rolf, I imagine you'll travel a little less lightly next time around, but still you're going to be one of the lightest travelers on the planet, and I think uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Thanks for uh, Thanks for inspiring us all to travel a little lighter. Well, thank you, Rick. Happy travels. Birds roasting in the tree Pick up and go And the going pros That's how it ought to be I pick up too When the spirit moves me Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help to John Hawken at KCUR in Kansas City and to Cheryl Harris for reading today's haiku. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including web links to our guests and a feedback forum for discussing what you hear on the show and to share your own travel tips. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. (laughs) Do it one more time. I like that. Have you seen the fish? There are no fish. See the beady eyes? Oh, BG, they are fish. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.